0: With Zeb Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's
1: your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom Zeb Brenner. He's a reg- become a regular guest on our program. We met him a year ago for Pesach, and he's a prolific writer. Rabbi Daniel Glassman joins us to Rav of Kihilis, to He has a whole group of Swarm. and the latest one is just out in time for Shamos Exodus and is published by Alay Publishers in Lakewood, but he's written in Bereshers, and we had him on for Chanukah, and I know Perm is in the works. So, hey, Rabbi Glossian, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you?
0: Nice to see you again.
1: Thank you. So, last time I had you on, you're dealing with Bereshers, and you published Beratius, uh Magad Harakia, but I believe you only did half Bereshers, and you skipped half and moved to Shamos, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, because, you know, the end of Bereshers is so loaded, I wanted to treat it separately with the sale of Yosef, uh, I, I, there is it's it's so latent, it's so loaded with uh, interesting uh, subjects that have to be tapped into. So I'm still working on the end of Boratius. And and this came out on Sefer Shamos, uh, right in time for the, the new Sefer.
1: So it's a new beginning. We're starting a whole new book, Got a lot to think about. So I'm always intrigued because uh, the, I think you're right about the fact that how many names did Moses and Moshe have? Did he have seven, ten? You added more. So let's look at the fact that he has so many names. And why is the Torah only calling by one? And how did he end up with so many different names?
0: Yeah, well, uh, there's an idea uh, that a name is not just a conventional appellation, but a name is supposed to capture the essence of that entity. In fact... Well,
1: parents have Navour, They have prophecy when they name yeah, it, Charles. Right. We
0: right. And, and when the angels asked God about, uh, man, Hashem said, his wisdom is greater than your wisdom. And the, and the Malacham said, how so? That they passed this animal in front of Adam, and Adam said, that's a gummel, that's a par, that's a set, uh, a yeah. so, camel, uh, uh, sheep. He was able to capture the entire essence of an animal in one word. That's the, the great wisdom of giving a name. So, the fact that Moshe, according to the Gemara, had seven names, or according to the meddash, has had ten names, that's just a way of describing the, the breadth and the, the greatness of Moshe's spiritual capacity, that there's so, he needed so many names because his greatness was so vast. And, uh, it's interesting of all the names, that God chooses to refer to Moshe, He uses the name that the Basia gave him.
1: Basya uh, hey, bit yeah. I heard people different. Yeah, people, people, people differently. yeah actually, you're mean? right.
0: In Divrei Hayamim, the correct uh, pronunciation is Bisya, but you know, conventionally, somehow, Bas, daughter of God, became uh, became the pronunciation. But but Basya is more more uh, precise. You know, Moshe is not even a Hebrew word. Moshe is an Egyptian name and and the fact that God should refer to Moshe by an Egyptian name it's like calling someone, I don't know, Jeff or, uh, or Kevin is definitely worthy of our attention why of all his names, he had very nice names, Tuvia, the good, the good one of God, Avigdar, the father of all those who made fences around the Torah, why of all the names that Moshe ben had, are we using the name he was yanked out of the water so in the Sefer we discuss a number of uh, approaches. One very beautiful approach, and maybe we'll, we'll speak about the other one as well, is you know if we were to try to identify the secret of the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu, where you know ha- how did he rise up to reach such a high level? After all, we, the Torah says he was the most humble man who ever lived. Rabbi Yonah says that just like he was the most humble man who ever lived, he likewise excelled in every imaginable uh, character trait. So, so how did he do it? So, this week, you know, we we find Moshe Rabbeinu's first encounter with God, where he came to the burning bush, and Moshe Rabbeinu stops for a minute, and he says. Uh, he says, I'm going to turn aside and see this great vision. Why does the, the bush not burn? Now this wasn't just a physical phenomenon. He was experiencing some kind of uh, prophecy where he envisioned a bush that was enveloped in fire and was not being consumed. And he, he put in the effort to try to comprehend the meaning of this prophecy. Sfarno, one of the classic Rishonim, explains that when God saw that Moshe Rabbeinu made an attempt to understand the prophecy, Hashem said, while you're making an effort, I will assist you in understanding. Spharno invokes the expression, "Habal Someone who comes to purify themselves, God assists them. So Moshe Rabbeinu made a small effort, and God said, you're making a small effort, now I will give you the heavenly assistance to really comprehend this, this, um prophecy. And the Sfarno says, this is similar to the psukim in Parashas Yisroy, where Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Harsinai, where the verse says, Vayal Moshe al Harsinai, Moshe went up, and when Moshe Rabbeinu went up, God came down on the mountain and he gave him the Torah. So, Vira the Svarno also says, when God saw the preparation that Moshe Rabbeinu made to ready himself to receive this divine communication at Sinai, so Hashem said, "Okay, you're making the effort; I'll I'll give you the divine prophecy." So we see that had Moshe Rabbeinu not prepared himself and not made that small um, hachana, that small preparation to ready himself at Sinai, God would not have given him the Tyra. So two times in the life of Moshe Rabbeinu, he made a, what we call hachana ketana, a small preparation, and God endorsed his efforts, acknowledged his efforts, and said, okay, you did your part, now I will give you the heavenly assistance, both by the burning bush and at Sinai. So it seems like the secret of the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu was that he understood You're not going to climb the heavens on your own, and you're not going to do it instantaneously, but you have to sort of do your small part. When you do your small part, then the divine uh, assistance kicks in. We see that by the burning bush, Moshe took made the efforts to understand, and Hashem explained it, and by Sinai. So where did Moshe get this um, sort of, Understanding from that in, in spirituality, you do your small part, and then God will take you the rest of the way there. You know the story goes that when the elevator was invented, the Chavitz Chaim was very excited about the elevator because he felt the elevator is a perfect analogy to Ruchnius, to spirituality, where yeah, all you have to, under, do, right. all you got to do is press the button, step in, and then you know, the elevator takes you the rest of the way there. So. You know, how did Rabbeinu know this? Where did he get this from? That you do your part and then God kicks in. He got it from his uh, stepmother, Bisya or Basya. Because when he was floating in the river, she from a distance sees the floating baby, and it says By Yishlach Es Amasa, she sent literally her maid servant Barashi brings from Chazal, she sent her arm. Her arm was only an ama long. But Moshe was well off in the distance. And a miracle occurred that the arm extended many, many, many amos. And so from Moshe's very inception, from his very beginning, from his genesis, it was imbued in him, it was endowed in him, this concept, this teaching, that you do your your small part, and once you do your part, the heavenly assistance comes in. So of all the names that Moshe Rabbeinu had... God selected the name Kimin HaMayim Meshi'sihu Moshe that he was drawn from the water because that endowed him, that imbued him with this very important principle that, you know, somebody uh, says, uh, you know, I'll never learn the whole Shas, I'll never learn the whole corpus of Talmud Babli, it's too big. So he said, no, no, don't don't look at it that way. You just make an effort, try to learn one page. You do your, your part, you try to learn one page. God will take it from there, but you got to make the first, you have to take the first step, and that was really the secret of Moshe Rabenu, where he always said, "I'm going to do my part," and then the heavenly assistance came in. So that's one facet of the name of Moshe Rabenu.
1: Very beautiful thought. But you mentioned that Moshe's greatness; he became a gadol. I heard, source another thought, which I don't know if you have in your statement, but it's a beautiful thought is that well, who was a Godel, who was considered a great person? Well, you could say somebody who's a titan in business, somebody who knows how to learn a lot, but the Torah gives us a hint, This is a Yigdal Moshe, Moshe became a Godel. Why? He saw the savlos, and he got involved in the oppression of our people. He, he did something about it. Yeah. So how do we know that this is really the, the essence? So they say, I think it's, um, the coder says that if you want to know what the word means, you got to go back to the first time it's used in the Torah. Mm-hmm. And what's the first time that the word godel is used? Dealing with the luminaries, with the sun and the moon, where it says the sun is the great sun that, uh, the, that's, that shines of day, and the moon shines by night. Mm-hmm. Very night, the moon shines at night. What does it mean? But if you look scientifically, you see the moon reflects the sun the sun is the giver the moon is the receiver so that's what we say is that when it comes to moshe moshe gave he's in she gave himself a and that's what we say at a bris mila we say we say we say this is the child and he should become big what does it really mean right now he's a cut he's he's a he's a taker he's mm-hmm. a receiver mm-hmm. he should become a guggle he should be giver. And that's why Moshe was great, was the giver. So I thought it's, it's, it fits in with what you're saying. Moshe was great in many different levels, but I thought this was a nice way of looking at it as well.
0: Yeah, that, that's um, a beautiful idea. And actually, uh, we'll get to it uh, if, you, if, if you allow me back Pesach time. You know why it's called Shabbos HaGadol. Um, but there, there, we find many times throughout the Chumash, whenever you see the word Gadol, Gadol means the ability to give. Um even v'aschanan, Moshe praise prays, Ata God, you begin to show your servant as god your greatness. Rashi on the spot says, midas your, tuvcha, your attribute of giving, your attribute of, of goodness. That That is gadle. In fact, uh, somebody showed me a beautiful parable. You know, you have these two great bodies of water in Israel. You have the Kinneret, you have the Galilee, and you have a little a little bit down, further south, you have the Dead Sea. And these two bodies of water cannot be more disparate. The Galilee is teeming with fish, with uh, plant life. You have, you have fish in the Galilee that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Um, the Talmud talks about the fruits that grow in that region as the most luscious fruits in the world. Peros Genosar. And then a little, little bit south, you have the Dead Sea. It's dead like a doorknob. Their scientists debate whether an amoeba or bacteria could even exist in the Dead Sea. So how do you have these two bodies of water? One flows into the other. One is full of life and the other is dead. The idea is the the, uh, Galilee, it receives the water from a higher water source, but it then gives it to the... sends it down. It's a giver. Where there is giving, there is life, there is vitality, uh, there is growth. But the Dead Sea is only a taker. Because after the water collects there, that's where it ends. And where there's just taking, then there's no life. And it's that's the Dead Sea. So that's like a very vivid graphic example of, you know, when there's giving, there's life, there's vitality. When there's only taking, nothing could survive. Um,
1: Beautiful. I love that thought. We're having a give-and-take conversation. Our guest is Rabbi Daniel Glastien, the Rav of Kahilas Ferris Mordechai. His latest sefer is called Magad Harakia. It's a beautiful sefer. It's a beautiful book about Shemos, about Exodus. Some wonderful thoughts is what we've been discussing. It, Rabbi Gloss, you mentioned names, and we're talking about names. Shifra and Pua. There's obviously a lot of discussion who Shifra and Pua, the midwives that refused to receive the power's orders to kill the Jewish babies. So let's analyze who they are.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so... Right, as, as you mentioned, the Talmud tells us in Meseches Sota on uh, page 11 on Dafya Aleph, Shifra was Yocheved and Pua was Miriam. Shifra because she was Mishaperes as Havlad, she would beautify the child, she would shape it, she would form it, she would make sure the limbs came out in the proper way and Pua, she would always Coo the child. Uh, Actually, they, they tell a humorous uh, Hasidic story about um, Rav Hillel of Kalamaya, who was uh, from the students of the Hassam Sofer, but a big kanoi, he was a big zealot. And when he, he would go to different communities and he would reprimand them and give them a musr and tell them you know, what they were doing wrong. And people once came to him and said, you know, Rabbi, I don't understand, the Divrei Chaim was here also. And when Divrei Chaim came here, he said, we're wonderful, we're tzaddikim, how righteous we are, and you come here and we can't do anything right. So uh, he said, well, you know, there are two midwives in the Jewish people. There's Shifra and Puah. Shifra, she makes everything beautiful. That's her style is everything is good. Puah, she said, pu, pu, pu. She uh she. So uh, there are two they're different kinds of rabbis. Some rabbis, everything is good, and some rabbis, you know, they tell it as it is. But... Uh, Interesting, the Gemara actually in Masech Sota says two explanations for Shifra. One is she beautified the child. And the other one is that the Jewish people In her lifetime, the Jewish people procreated. So actually, uh, Zev, I just came back from Morocco. I did a Jewish heritage tour in Morocco. We went to the grave of... Um, well, the cover of somebody, Yehuda ben Atar. Yehuda ben Atar was the preeminent uh, Talmud Chacham in Morocco. We're talking in the 17th century. The Arachayim HaKadosh, Rab Chaim ibn Atar, went to him to get a approbation, to get a haskama for his Sefer. He was, Rabihuda uh, ben Atar, frequently learned with Elioa Navi So I'm on your show a lot. He would... Speak to Elio Anavi a lot. That was his go to, uh, and that's Elijah the prophet. For those Elijah the prophet. And in fact, uh, Chidar writes that that it was well known people who would go to his grave would experience all kinds of salvation and miracle. And anyway, he, he sort of analyzes this Gemara that what does the Gemara mean? She's called Shifra because the Jewish people procreated in her lifetime. Well, they procreated in the lifetime of anyone alive in that generation. Why are we singling out her that she's called Shifra because the Jewish people procreated in her lifetime? It was in the lifetime of anyone in that generation. So he says, well, no, not exactly, because if there is anyone whose lifetime is defined by the experience in Egypt it would be Yocheved because you know she was born she was born as the Jewish people were entering Egypt as the 70 souls were coming down she she was born that moment and she left Egypt so if there's anyone that we could say their lifetime embodied the the Egyptian experience it's Yocheved Yocheved is the, her life was Egypt she was born upon entry And she left. So therefore, the sages say the Jewish people procreated in her lifetime.
1: Also, she was 130 years old when she gave birth, so it was a great miracle. So you have this great birth taking place at an age which women don't give birth. It was a great miracle. Yeah. But it doesn't really talk about it as much. Uh, I guess because they say because Sarah already broke the age barrier by having a child at 90. So even though this was 130, but it already has been broken. Yeah. But certain was that maybe that's another reason why because she was very productive at an, at that age and she, she, and, and in essence was the mother of the nation and also because she got to get back together with her husband where they separated from the wives because they didn't want to have children during a Holocaust or, or when she, when there was such oppression of the Jewish people. And uh, she t- took the advice of her daughter Miriam and got back together with her husband.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's sort of the mother of procreation. She's the paragon of uh, pruvu.
1: Now, but isn't there different opinions who Shifra and Pua are? Isn't there another opinion, Elisheva?
0: Um, uh, it's possible, I'm not familiar. I don't
1: know. But also another opinion that Shifra and Pua are Egyptian. They're not even Jewish. In fact, Rabbi says that any word that has the word "pay" and ration, it, like paro...
0: Those it were Egyptian to, etymology?
1: Pura and Pua were Egyptian, according to some of the commentators mm-hmm. as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I was explaining the opinion of the Gemara in Masech the Sachta Sota mm-hmm. On the subject you mentioned earlier regarding uh, Moshe Abinu. he became a gadol when he went out to shoulder the burden of his people. Um... I think a very important thought occurred to me uh, yesterday. It's not in the book, but uh, hopefully in upcoming, uh, upcoming works. You know, in the beginning, of uh, when we were in Morocco, we had a small Sefer Torah with us. Uh, literally, the Sefer Torah was a mezuzah. It was, it was maybe this tall. It was tiny letters. The balcore almost had to use a magnifying glass. And we know Parshas Vayechi is what is called Parshas Susuma, where there's no space between the end of Vayigash and the beginning of Vay- Vayichi, it's hard enough as it is to know where to start the the laning. In this Sefer Torah, it was like nearly impossible. How did you
1: write Sefer to Torah? I would like to
0: know. Yeah, I, I don't know how he did it. I, it was pretty. It was pretty remarkable. But you know, Rashi comments, "Why is Vayichi sealed? Because when Yaakov passed away and the bondage began, the eyes and the heart of the Jewish people were sealed shut." That's a well-known comment of Rashi. And I think we, we just gloss over it. But I think if we study it for a moment, it's going to open for us a really important uh, understanding. What does it mean the eyes and the heart of the Jewish people w- were sealed shut? The bondage started and life was miserable. Why refer to the eyes and the heart? The the statement of Chazal that you referred to before that, Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayigdal, Vayetzeyel Echav. He went out to his brethren. Rashi comments Nasan Enov the he put his eyes and his heart, Leos Metzar to feel their pain. I think what Rashi is telling us is that when the bondage started and Yaakov died, you know what it means our eyes and our heart were sealed shut? We were so self immersed and engrossed in our own pain that we couldn't look to sympathize with somebody else or to shoulder or empathize with anybody else. We were so immersed in our own trouble. You know, when somebody has a hard time, they can't listen to someone else's Taurus. They're so caught up in their own problems, they don't have the wherewithal to empathize with anybody else. So when the bondage started, the eyes and the hearts of the Jewish people were sealed shut. They couldn't anymore empathize and sympathize with anybody else. And you know, that's a very big problem. Because if you want God to look at your tsara and to feel your tsara, God said, if you're not looking at anybody else, if you can't look at someone else's pain and feel someone else's pain, then quid pro quo, mida ken mida, I ain't looking at your pain or feeling your pain. So, so to speak, when our eyes and heart are sealed shut, we're stuck in Egypt. We have no way to get out because God is going to respond in kind. He's not going to look at our pain, he's not going to feel our pain. So we're stuck, we're stuck there. God's going to ignore us because that's how we're dealing with our friends. Somebody has to break the cycle. So comes along the savior of the Jewish people, Moshe Rabinu, and he says, you know how I'm going to break the cycle? Rashi says he put his eyes and his heart to feel the pain of the Jewish people. Oh, God says, here's the man. I've been waiting for someone like this. Because if you're going to look at someone else's pain and feel someone else's pain, I will now look down from heaven and look at the Jewish people's pain and feel their pain. And that's what the verse says. Vayar Elohim Kim es b'nei Yisrael Vayeda Eloy Rashi says, God put his eyes and his heart to see and feel the pain of the Jewish people. So this this Mida of empathy and sympathy is not just a nice characteristic. This seems to be what made Moshe eligible to be our redeemer and and awakened in heaven that Hashem should should really be attentive to our plight.
1: But didn't the tribe of Levi also have empathy, for example they named the child Morari, even though they were not part of being oppressed? But they sympathized and empathized by naming Kahas putting they were on edge. Amorari. They they were bitter because of what happened to the brothers and sisters. There yeah. Good. Good.
0: Baby. Yeah. You know that they, they definitely showed uh, they commiserated. Uh, but but of, of of all of them, it was it was Moshe Rabenu who really did something about. It. Like you mentioned, he went he he took action to.
1: Back uh, the Egyptian, right. Yeah. Rabbi Dan Glasson is our guest. He's Rabbi of Kahilas Tiferes Mordechai. Uh, his latest book is called Magad Herakia. It's a series on Chumash, this one is on Baraishus. And we are looking at Exodus and some interesting concepts in this unique—well, all of them are unique—but in this unique Baraishus uh, that uh, constitute Baraishus. In your book, in your safer, you may—and I always, by the way, always look at the, you know at the at the what happened in Egypt as. Really, so many millions of Jews, according to Chazal, according to our rabbis, died. I look at it as akin to the Holocaust. After the exodus uh, it took 40 years, we got to Israel. After the Holocaust, for a short period of time, we made it to Israel. I'm curious to know about your correlation. You write about the stories relating to the Holocaust, including about your grandfather. So let's look at that, and let's look at the relationship between Egypt and the Holocaust.
0: Okay, you know, that's um, at first glance, you know, you you think... You know what? What would the Egyptian experience uh, have to do with uh, more contemporary difficulties? But as you mentioned, four-fifths of our people perished, and they were thrown—the babies were thrown into the river. So it was nothing short of a Holocaust. And I once heard an idea. I have a friend uh, from Yeshiva, Ezra Gwertz, whose grandfather is Rabbi Barrowine. So he once oh. he once shared with me. Um, um, a speech Rabbi Wine gave to his family but I later saw Rabbi Wine writes this uh story in a number of his books he um he has a, a a new book uh heads or tails and I found it in his drashos in Hebrew where he tells a story about his first uh how he wondered you know why of all the names that uh, Moses is referred to, God only uses the name that Basia used. Why, why that name? He had nice names. Why God, Why would God use the Egyptian name like we asked before? Uh, use Avigdar, use Tuvya, he had, he had really nice names. And uh, Rabbi Wein remembers his first trip to the children's uh, memorial in Yad Vashem, which is um, a memorial to the 1.5 million Jewish children who were massacred in the Holocaust. And as he's going, he figures, okay, he knows what a Holocaust memorial is. He figured there'll be uh, um, exhibits, there'll be uh, information, documents, pictures. And he was completely uh, surprised by what he saw. You go into a room, you know, 50 feet tall, and the room is pitch black. Like, the, the blackness, the darkness is palpable. Like makaschosach, uh, you can't even put one foot in front of the other, and your eyes have to adjust. You, you can't, you, you can't see anything, and you know there's one pinpoint of light in the vast sea of darkness, and through the genius of the designer and the architect, and through mirrors, that one pinpoint of light is reflected over a million times, and there's a voice that plays, and the voice says. Miriam Cohen, 8 years old, Sarajevo, Sarah Friedman, 11 years old, Vilna, Yaakov Levine, 4 years old, Warsaw. Names, 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 n- until you can't bear it anymore. Ray Wein said he ran out of uh, the room and he just couldn't bear it. And after a few moments, he thought to himself, Hey, I didn't hear my name on the list. I grew up, I was of age, I was the same age. My grandparents left uh, Europe, so I, I was born in America. But I was the same age of those kids. And my name wasn't on that list. And if my name wasn't on that list, then God saved me. God yanked me out of the Holocaust. And if he saved me, there is a reason for it. I have a purpose in my life. I have a mission in this world. God's calling out to me. Hey, you weren't on the list. What are you going to do with yourself? What are you going to do for the Jewish people? And Rabbi Wein says it occurred to him that that's likely a reason why God always referred to him as Moshe. God was saying, Moshe! Moshe! You were yanked out of the sea. Not like the other millions of Jewish children that were drowned or eaten by the crocodile or the snake. All those other kids were murdered in the Holocaust of Egypt. But Moshe, I yanked you out. You don't want to do my mission? Moshe, Moshe, don't you know I saved you? And Moshe has no choice but to say, All right, God, you got me. I'm ready. What do you want me to do? The thing about the including your grandfather. us about that. Yeah, so uh, I just used uh, what, what I said about Rabbi Wine Personally, uh, my, my grandfather and his brother were, were thrown into uh, the gas chamber. And at the very last moment, the Nazi pulled them by their hair, pulled them out and said, you're young, you're capable of work. Get out and uh, saved his life. And I always think, you know, it wasn't my grandfather only that, they, that, that, that was saved. It was my father, it was me, it was my children. God saved us, you know, he must have wanted us. We didn't go down in the smoke like the other six million. And really, any Jew alive today has to think to themselves that if they're around and they have the good fortune to have a Jewish education, and they made it through 2,000 years of Jewish history, then God is saying to them, Moshe, Moshe, I saved you from the Nile. I saved you from Inquisition, from Crusade, from Pogrom, from Holocaust. What are you going to do for us? What are you going to do for the Jewish people? And we have no choice but to say, Hineni, all right God, you got me. I'm ready. What do you need me to do?
1: As you were speaking, you remind me Rabbi Schwab has a very interesting insight. Now, according to the rabbis, who had millions of Jews die during the Plague of Darkness, four-fifths of the Jews died, only one-fifth left Egypt. So Rabbi Schwab asked the question, how is it possible that the Egyptians didn't notice, and how is it possible that a plague hurt the Jews more than it hurt the Egyptians? So basically he said that very few Jews died during the Plague of Darkness, where those that wanted to stay died. So why does the Torah say, the fact that, you know, why do we have the chazal that say there was millions? It refers to each subsequent generations, that each one that was saved had so many doors, so many generations out of them. So it was millions extending to the future, yeah. not at that moment in time. And he gave him, there's an example that's given. I think some Rebbe it was, had a class, a huge, huge class. It's a snowstorm and only four people show up and the Rebbe's screaming and yelling as if there's a whole classroom and the them go, the kids go. Listen, Rebbe. We have only like three or four guys here, so why are you acting like we have a full class? He goes, you think I'm only speaking to you. I'm speaking to your children, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren. I think that's another, I, I love the concept where Roshwa brought out, because otherwise to say so many Jews died in Egypt is hard to fathom that the Egyptians didn't notice and the Jews were affected more by a plague than the Egyptians were.
0: Yeah, that's a very powerful okay. thought, and uh, something we always have to bear in mind.
1: Well, literally a few moments left, Shovavim, it starts with Shemot. Tell A lot of people don't know what the fast of Shovim is all about. So perhaps you can share that with us. So them.
0: just in a nutshell, uh, Shovavim is a Kabbalistic time. Uh, it's based on the idea that you mentioned Yocheved was 130 years old. That's intimately connected with the fact that between Adam's first children and his third child, Chais there were 130 years. During that time, Chazal say that Adam Harishayin uh n- it's put it this way, not for a general audience, but during those one hundred and thirty years, Adarion emitted certain emissions that he needed to rectify. Let's put it that way Did he
1: father a whole bunch of
0: The Gemara Ervin says that he produced demons and and Demon. and okay. Okay. evil spirits and That's right. and uh those those spiritual entities were then reincarnated in the souls of Egypt. And uh, therefore, during these weeks of the year, when we're reading about Egyptian bondage and freedom, it's a time to um, focus on purification for, uh, from, from this type of impurity. And, uh, and therefore, during these weeks, Shovavim, um, ending in Parshas we, uh, Meshpatim, we, we focus on, let's say, personal sanctity or for women to the, the laws of tara HaMashpacha, of family purity.
1: And people fast. The only fast used to be Some people
0: answer. fast Monday and Thursday, yeah. yeah.
1: But it's totally Kabbalistic. It's more Hasidic in our... It's... it's uh, it, it
0: originates in the Arizal. Yes.
1: Right. It's more of a... Like I said, it's more... The Ashkenazi communities now. It's more of a Hasidic custom Chesna. they fast. a show
0: of Yeah. It, it, it's, very, it's very Kabbalistic where... uh there are ways of even in in uh, let's say in Yerushalayim in the Kabbalah in the Yeshiva Shar Hashamayim, people will go there and they'll have certain uh, redemptions where they pay off <laughs> their 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 fasting. But again, I think the main thing is that uh, in in everything in Torah, whenever we read about something, there's an idea we're reenacting that experience, and therefore if we're reading about the uh, bondage in Egypt, then to, to a certain extent, spiritually, it's as if we're there. And uh, everything in Torah is latent and laden with great depth. Some of it we know about. Most of it uh, we're still aspiring to understand.
1: Are you saying the devil's in the details?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And Rabbi Daniel Glaston, the Rav Kekilas, to Ferris Mordechai, his latest book is called Safer. is published by Alize Publishers in Lakewood, New Jersey. If
0: anybody wants to get the safer, it's available at better firm stores near you, or you could go on our site, RabbiDG.com, RabbiDG.com, and uh, you could get it for, with free shipping.
1: Give out that information one more time.
0: Okay, uh, RabbiDG.com. Uh, could you could you relay that?
1: RabbiDG.com.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: Are you saying that there are inferior farm stores, when you say there better
0: farm stores near you? Absolutely. There are superior farm stores and inferior farm stores. Any <laughs> any farm store that carries this Safer, obviously, is one of the superior sure. farm stores. Stop here. <laughs> Rabbi
1: thank you for joining. I'm looking forward to having you back, especially for your Farm Safer. that's going to be coming out soon.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to <laughs> Talk Live with Zeb Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast, the pulse beat of the Jewish community. Okay.